Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And with me today, I have Mr. James Cottingham of DK Engineering. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Yeah, hello. So at the moment, we're sitting in your office at DK. Can you sort of give the audience a little bit of an explanation of sort of who you are, where we are, what you guys do? Sure. So we are uh, an independent Ferrari specialist. We were established in 1977 founded by my parents. So DK is David and Kate, mm-hmm. a business that was built up as a result of their passion for cars. So they had racing cars in the main in the 60s and dad had a normal day job at Kodak as a research physicist. He always tells a story about how he paid off the local news agent to have every week's copy of Exchange and Mark delivered to him before anyone else. <laughs> so he could make the phone call at 7am to find all the sort of cheapest Jaguars and things that he could buy the best XK120s before anyone else had seen the adverts, you know, would buy a car, would use the facilities at Kodak because they had a car club for for, for all the employees. They had the different clubs and there was a car club and they had a fully equipped workshop with paint shop, trim shop, all that sort of stuff. So he'd buy a car and, you know, in his evenings, do it up, restore it, whatever, sell it on for a profit and move on. And in the the mid seventies, I think mum and dad were both sort of a bit bored of their day jobs and decided to set up a business. And, I, and at that time, they had recently bought and sold a few Ferraris on mm. the same, in the same way. So they, and they're both car, both car nuts. Both car people, yep. I think they, they, they met as a result of dad having nice cars and mum liking cars and <laughs> riding in his Mark, yeah. one, Mark 1 Jag that had a D-type engine fitted with side exhaust and you know, that sort of stuff. Nice. And uh, so they, they, they had recently bought and sold a few Ferraris and done quite well with it and thought, well, this is you know, a good mark to be associated with. I think dad was bored of, of uh, Jaguars because the engines are all very similar and, you know, there wasn't much variety to them. And he'd sort mm. of been there, done that. And there was so much Ferrari-wise out there that wasn't restored. Plus, at that time, there was only one other independent specialist in the UK. That was Graypool. Mm. 
or David Clark Engineering as it was at the time before they were a main dealer and later became Graypool, the main dealer. Oh. So, you know, he saw a bit of a window or they saw a bit of a window, started the business and their thing was 50s sports Ferraris. So there were lots and lots of 50s sports Ferraris at that time that were there, you know, lying in barns as sort of old race cars that, you know, had had engine blow ups and were unrepairable or too difficult to repair. Uh, and he sort of enjoyed the challenge, had some really good guys working alongside him when he started the business. Uh, in fact, one of his apprentices at that time is one of our, not not what I'd call a competitor, but has you know, one of the most famous other Ferrari restoration yeah. shops in the UK is is owned and run by his first apprentice yeah, yeah. who worked oh, with, with us until the mid-90s, actually. And and so, yeah, it went from there and they were restoring 50s sports Ferraris in the main. And obviously it was an incredible time for values of cars right up until the late 80s. They, they always talk about how they were buying and selling so much and restoring stuff for you know, buy it for a hundred thousand and it was worth a million dollars 10 years later after yeah. the restoration, you know, it was an incredible time for them. And they, they bought and sold a hell of a lot of, a lot of cars. And if you go on the website, barketta.cc, which is a really sort of very unknown website, but documents the histories of those early Ferraris very really? well, you will see dad's name or our business's yeah. name a lot. And some of our biggest clients, you know, have said to me over the years, one of the reasons I was drawn to DK is because, you know, I was looking at all these great cars, whether it's a competition yeah. short wheelbase or a, 250 Testarossa or something like that. And I just kept seeing these same names coming up, you know, and it was either the owners or the people, the dealers that yeah. were associated with them, which, which was us. So that's where the business started about in the mid nineties, you know, my two older brothers came into the business and I came into the business in the early noughties uh, in 2002, but did mechanical engineering at university for four mm-hmm. years as well. And, and our sales side of the business really grew in the mid nineties because by that time we had, such great knowledge of the cars and the people and you know knew where the cars were and i think at that time that's where our love for f40 started you know that was sort of four or five years after Mm. the point in time where the cars went from being a million pounds to a hundred thousand pounds overnight and there were lots of guys that had hung on to these cars for five years thinking would it ever be a million again it it wasn't it wasn't going to happen soon you know actually took 20 years (laughs) and uh or more than 20 years actually 25 years i guess so we started buying and selling a lot of cars. And and it was in 2005 or six that we really made the decision that we really needed to focus more on sales than, than, the, than the workshop side of things. So we moved to our current site here, which is an old farm that we quite famously restored because it was the first time anyone had sort of restored a farm to this specification, I think, in terms of our workshop was super high tech and along the lines of a main dealer Ferrari network uh, dealership at that time with the kind of ramps we had and the in-floor exhaust systems and stuff like that but also to have this very quaint setup of offices. You have in-floor exhaust systems. Yeah, so our, our extraction systems for the yeah. for the um, exhaust fumes when you're running cars up in the workshop is hidden in the floor. So oh, you, nice. just, you open a hatch and you pull out the tube and put it on the car. Whereas in the past, you know, it was always from the ceiling. And yeah. it was just, you know, we wanted it to be very state-of-the-art, very clean and very, you know, we, we had realised at that point in time that we were storing a lot of cars by then. We were selling a lot of cars. We were restoring. We were also servicing modern cars. And it mm. was, there was a real window for the complete service. And you'll see that when we talk about what we're doing on Instagram, things like that, we really sort of bang that drum of the complete service. Uh, and I've noticed that other dealers in the world of late have yeah. started talking about the cars that they're restoring, uh, yeah. which I always find quite amusing and flattering because yeah. they are, you know, going to have a, have a look at the restoration that, the bills are going through their business, but it's nothing to do with them. And they're taking some <laughs> photos every now and again and probably not really giving any technical input. Maybe yeah. maybe they've got a good eye for detail, but, but, they're, handling but it. they're not really 
giving it any technical input, you know, yes, we don't do paint and trim here, but we do manage the process from start to finish. And the guys at the, at the trim shop and the guys at the metal workshop, they, you know, we review their work periodically and we, yeah. we point them in the right direction detail wise. So at that time we realized that it was very important that we should really expand the business so that we could look after all these different aspects. And that's why, again, today you see quite a lot of non Ferraris on our website because we're buying and selling those cars for our, you know, our, our clients and, and, um, generally the modern car stock that you'll see on our website is either a part exchange or something that we're selling for an established client. Yeah. I think if someone phones me up today and says, will you sell a 360 spider for me? I will say, quite frankly, I don't think we're best placed to do that because we don't have a list of guys looking for those cars. Yeah. And we're probably a bit too expensive for that. But if you wanted to sell a Challenge Stradale, which is a you know limited production, lightweight, special car, we probably do have a list of guys yeah. for that. And we would probably get the best result because of the all-encompass service that we provide mm. and what people are looking for and our long-term you know, projection and objectives when it comes to looking after clients. So, you know, it's been a, the last, you know, since 2008 or nine, it's been an amazing time. The business has continued to grow. I think I lose track of how many cars exactly we have in our care, but it's, it's somewhere in the region of, I always used to say 250, mm. but it is a lot more than that. And it is frankly must be today 350 cars that are in our care. You know, you've just been to the yeah, store. Yeah, we just done the full me. tour. We've done all the showrooms. We've got all the cars in the workshop. Plus, we've got a collection of 100 cars that we look after for one other client who has his own building close by <laughs> that, that we manage. Nice. And 10 miles away, we have another store with 40 or so cars in that are much longer-term storage. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive undertaking. Yeah. And, you know, we've got a great team here of people that do their different bits and pieces, which has been the other part that's been difficult in recent years, but we've have really got right of late, I think is having the guys that run the, the servicing side of the business, yeah. the guys that run the storage side of the business, the guys that, you know, are major parts of the sales business and everyone working together and getting along and understanding the protocols and processes, which, you know, the values are so high today that yeah. the guys that own these cars actually are probably, you know, better served letting us just handle everything for them so they can get on with their day job. Yeah, 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 exactly. Hopefully make some more money to buy the next. Is, is getting staff, is that quite difficult now? Because you need people with a certain set of skills and things. Yeah, it's really tough. You know, on the workshop side of things, I think that we, we get our best staff from guys that have been elsewhere for a while mm -hmm. and, want to, and have specialised in a field and then have decided they want to go elsewhere and specialise, you know, learn about the sort of, the broader spectrum of things, yeah. which is what we offer. And those guys, you know, they'll be really good at a particular brand or a particular age of car, and they'll come here and we'll round off their skill set. And hopefully, you know, they'll stay here. Because you know, as we walked through the workshop, you saw everything from 355 through to, well, two or three F40s. I yeah, think, there's just... To total restoration of, of Dino and a total restoration of Aluso and all sorts of things like that, to the ProDrive 550, you know, there's... All sorts going There's on. There's just here. a ton of really cool cars when you come and have a look around. Just every it's it's a collection of loads of buildings, all sort of very similar inside, but a whole bunch of just different stuff. And then it's, it's funny you walk around and you see, I don't know how many F40s we've seen today. A lot, a lot of F40s. It must be close to twenty. <laughs> Probably something yeah, I know like there's twenty. Fourteen, fourteen in the store, and I think. There's one in the showroom, or outside the showroom at the moment. I think there were four in the workshop, so that would be 19. So it's a, it's a decent number. It's, it's funny, and, and they're all, well, actually, they're not all red, but they're, they're pretty much all red. And actually, we got to the point of distinguishing, like, how do you 
when you end up with so many cars that are so similar, how do you distinguish between the values of those cars? And it, it starts to get down to really, uh, you know, we were saying like mileage, like mileage becomes the distinguishing feature or like one has a cat, one doesn't have a cat, all that sort of stuff. Whereas looking from here, we've got, what we've got, a competition Daytona. Yeah, we've got a competition Daytona, which is one of only 25 cars that are accepted by Ferrari's period comp cars. 15 of those were built by Ferrari, 10 were converted from road cars by independents. That's one of the 10 that was converted. Very hard to value. Very. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the list of owners of the 15 factory cars, pretty much... I think half of them own 250 GTOs as well. So they're really special cars because they're the last of that breed of, you know, drive it to the racetrack, race it and drive it home again. And in my eyes, they are so much cooler than the normal road car. Oh, I mean, I personally, I'm, I hate Daytonas as a road car. I hate a strong word, but it's the one of the last cars. You're not massive. I've just never enjoyed one. I've never enjoyed driving one. I've never enjoyed selling one. Bit like Lamborghinis, <laughs> as you got the impression earlier on. I understand Lamborghinis and they're for people, but they're not for me. Yeah, and that's down to personal experience. It's not. It's not necessarily a reflection of a stereotype or anything. It's just I've had bad experiences with Lamborghinis. Daytona's the same, but Comp Daytona's. You know, I've had a lot of fun with Comp Daytona's. Mm. Some of my earliest childhood memories of going up the motorway with Dad in in the Comp Daytona's that we restored in the nineties, and in recent years, you know, I've done two or three big rallies in a Comp Daytona and had so much fun with them. And as you say, they're just so much better looking than a standard car. Yeah, so much cooler. Yeah. There's uh, something a little bit sort of like Japanese JDM about them. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and and quite sinister as well, you know, with the big yeah. arches. They're, they're very max power, but it works, really yeah. works. No, it's, it's very cool. Yeah, so what's like day-to-day? What's most stuff? Are you having cars in for service, restorations, and then selling the odd car for clients how does it sort of split you a full mix of everything my time well just at here at dk um, well, and the then work, also you personally. i mean the, so the workshop is flat out the whole time you know we we probably book on average between three and five weeks ahead for service yeah. work the blend of retail versus sales work is about 60 percent retail 40 percent sales yeah as you can imagine the more cars we buy and sell the more we need to you know, prepare them. The more we yeah. inspect, the more we do work as part of a sale. Uh, that, I think that's one of the downfalls of having a workshop and, and a sales outfit is obviously everything that we sell has to go through the workshop. I mean, we want it yeah. to. It's expected of us, but we want it to. You know, when jobs go wrong, we end up paying for it. You can imagine a, a dealer yeah. that doesn't have a workshop if he sends his F40 to another independent specialist to have the fuel tanks change and they have to take them out yeah. again because they're leaking. He doesn't get charged it's any extra. Yeah. yeah, they're like, oh okay, this job's cost 16000 as opposed to 14000 but we'll wear the 2000 Whereas here, I end up paying that extra 2000 <laughs> which does get you down. But, you know, it, it, what I can take away from it is that we can stand by every single car that we sell. And every car, you know, you've checked, you've driven, you're... Yeah, and, 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 like, and because should... we do it so often, you know, yeah. every single car and different models go, you know, go in and out of the workshop. Of course, there's a pinch of salt you have to take with all these things, especially yeah. the older the cars get. There are certain things that you say, okay, we understand that, we accept that, this needs attention, this needs to be monitored going forwards. We, we, you know, we sign that off. We're the ones that, that say we're happy for that to, to have been left or for that to, you know, to be looked at next year. But so, so the workshop is flat out the whole time. Sales-wise, we sell uh, around about 100 cars a year, yeah. which... Which well, well, that was the average number, but I think actually today we probably sell more like 
125, 130 mm. a year, which considering there's just two of us really doing sales, Harvey Stanley and myself. Sorry, that's one one name, Harvey Stanley. <laughs> okay, Stanley, <laughs> you sound so. like three people. Yeah, no, Harvey Stanley and myself, James Cossingham. And then we have two guys who work with us in the sales department, making sure that the whole process is is rounded in terms of yeah. from the check-in of the sales car to make sure you know, log what's there, log what prep's required to when we've sold the car, making sure everything we've agreed to do is, is done. Uh, it's quite a lot. You know, we are really busy with sales and actually our quarter up to the end of February was one of our best for 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 10 or so. So we've we've had a really good run of late. And it, you know, it all comes down to all the events we do, you know, going worldwide, you sort of make notes of what people are looking for or what yeah. people want to sell and what they have. And, you know, whilst we have our stock list, we also do a hell of a lot of deals where we're just putting A and B together. People and, together, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's really nice. You know, that's really satisfying for us because obviously it's low risk for us. There's no investment yeah, yeah. apart from all the thousands we spend on travel and advertising. But, uh, but quite a lot of that, you're driving cars. Yeah, but it's, that's a very serious part of it. You know. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Yeah. To get in these, these race cars and whatnot. I have to say the the calendar has become so full the last two years, I've really mm. noticed it. You know, I've been doing this, well, as I said, since 2002, but absolutely full time since 2008. Yeah, the last two years, you've really noticed that there's just, there's always two more concours events. There's yeah. always one more rally. There's always one more auction. There's just so much going on that the one, obviously we're recording this in the middle of March and yeah. uh, the world- Everything's about to get cancelled. The, the world around <laughs> us seems to be falling apart because of a, a virus, but- um the one thing I will take away from that at the moment is that suddenly I'm not away every weekend, which yeah, is quite, nice. quite refreshing in, in a way. Although, you know, it would be nice to be going racing and doing all those things. And obviously we've, yesterday we had the tour auto, well, postponed until September yeah. for the time being. And the same with the Patrick Peter race meeting at uh, Paul Ricard. Do you, try and, and, do you try and get to most of the, like most events throughout the year? And obviously there's tons and tons and tons of stuff. Like what have your... What are your like go to major events of the year? So if you picked like let's say I think you've got to work on a two year basis. Okay. Because yeah. obviously Monaco Historic and Le Mans Classic, I think you've got to go to those events which are every other year. Mm. Therefore, Villa d'Este we tend to go to every other year. Yeah. Um and when we're not going to Monaco, we'll go to Villa d'Este, which is a fabulous event and you know, very special. Pebble Beach, for us, we have to be there every year. We do great business there. And you know, we've always take part we always take a car there or take yeah. part in something, you know, from a, from not only a, a dealer point of view, but an enthusiast point of view. And yeah. Often we'll have cars in the auctions too. We make sure that we go to the members meeting and the revival Goodwood point of view and possibly the festival speed, but probably the festival speed every other year. And then we'll focus on a particular race series, I think. So this year, very much, uh, we were going to focus on the Peter Auto series because it's, yeah. It's very European central and, uh, you know, obviously I've seen you at, at the race meetings we did go to last year with, you know, I think they've done a great job of pulling in all different types of racing cars. You know, there's such good variety when you go to those race meetings that people can go and... It's, you know, it's be, just the coolest bunch of cars. Yeah, yeah, and uh, totally. And, and I think, you know, I think, I actually think Ron Maiden of Masters got this first. He realised that guys are busy. So if they're going to go racing five or six weekends a year, you need to put on... A, a, you know the different race series that you have on your calendar at each race meeting yeah. they need to be there together so that someone can buy a car for that race a car for that race and a car for that race i didn't realize this was a thing and people go and they say and so they go to one weekend and they do three races so they do three free three times free practice sessions yeah. 
three qualifying sessions and three races in three different cars and get the most out of their weekend. And, you know, they're, they're not sitting idle, make, you know, being away from the family for only four or five yeah. weekends as opposed to going to 15 different race meetings to race three different cars. Patrick Peter in recent years has really done very well, you know, taking on board the two-litre cup with the 911s. That's taking, done very well. I mean, that's and it's a great race series. And I, actually, Harvey did it for two years before I had a go last year. And he kept coming back and saying, oh, it's amazing. And I just thought, it's just a 911. How can it be that good? <laughs> and then last year I went to Hungary and yeah. had a go with um, John Bennett, who's a very good mate of mine, Andrew Smith's stepfather. In qualifying, I was a bit frustrated. First time in the car and it was a bit wet and just thought, oh, you know, this is not, no one, not everyone's running to the yeah. same rules here. You can cer- certainly see that different cars are different. And then I started the race and by the end of lap three or four, I think I was in third position and ended up having a, a great race with Mark Sumpter, who yeah. won the championship event eventually, and Mike Jordan, who's obviously both of those guys have raced Porsches yeah. forever. It's the first time I'd ever raced a Porsche. And it was the first time in a long time that I got out of a car, not, you know, surprised at how hot and sweaty I was, yeah. but also just with a grin like from buzzing. ear to ear. And just, it was just such close racing. And every moment that you came off the throttle, you were kicking yourself because you said, <laughs> why have I done that? You know? And it took me back to my early days of racing FIA MGBs. That's what it was like. Yeah. You know, there were 150 horsepower, 950 kilo, 1965 MGBs. And it yeah. was it was very close tight racing. And I started that with Ollie Bryant and a guy called Tom Smith, who still races them, who is the king of MGBs. And mm. you know, Rob Huff was doing it at that time. And, and it was really good racing. And that was back in 2002, 2003. That was really good racing. The 911s took me back to that. But there's something quite nice about a five-speed gearbox and it's a 1965 Porsche 911. Somehow that sort of simple combination works really well and no one turns their nose up up to it, apart from me two years ago, but I don't anymore. I think that's one of the things, isn't it? Until you go out and race in a really close series or something like that, or because you get some, some categories where there's such a spread of cars and... As much as that interests me in the sense of I like certain cars and certain, you know, whether it's the Porsches or the Ferraris or whatever, and you pick your camp and they all race against each other, they're not the same speed. And racing in a class where, in theory, all of these cars are the same speed, the racing is so much better, although they're not all the same speed. Yeah, it it, it definitely is. And don't get me wrong, you know, a a one-make race series is a cool thing but also actually when you look at your tts of the world you yeah. know when you've got cobra versus gto cool. versus e-type that's really cool and just to see where certain cars are stronger than others but it's quite refreshing to see that in historic motorsport yeah. a one make series because it didn't exist you know it really didn't in the 60s yeah. that didn't exist and so we've never seen that before we've always had races within races so it's really good when you then get you know 35 or 40 of these cars together and you see the spread yeah. And it really, you know, it separates the, you know, the men from the boys. Yeah, you can't just use the, oh, well, you've got 400 horse, more horsepower yeah, you're, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I'm just in a, you know, yeah. a little lightweight load sedan or whatever. It's, it's, it is, you know, it's an even, even playing field. So that race series is great. And I think the other thing that Patrick Peters really nailed is, is the, um, I always get the name wrong, so I apologise to Jar in advance, but I think it's now called Global Endurance Legends. It's Endurance Racing Legends. It's Endurance Racing Legends. It was it. called the Global that's Endurance it, Legends. Yeah. Right. Fine. So that, but that group, so that's 90s and 2000s Le Mans cars. And that's great, you know, and, and for whatever reason, the Europeans have seemed to gone more for the GT1, GT1 and GT2 cars, which, you know, the prototypes 
haven't been so popular in that. And I went to Spa last year with the Dallara and yeah. had quite a lonely time. But the size of that grid now with the GT1 and GT2 cars, I mean, it's amazing. I think that's that's what Jarrah's tried. He's tried to get more GT and GT1 cars. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, all of them are just awesome. Like the Dallara that you've got sounds unbelievable. And then and then you see all the Ferrari, yeah, likewise the Ferrari and all these V12 Astons and then the old Lambo and, you know, Maserati or whatever. It's just, for me, who I would say is relatively new to being enthusiastic about this sort of event, the 90s and 2000s stuff is just unbelievable. And I'm slowly getting more accustomed to the older stuff. And, and it changed so quickly because it went from 80s, early 90s, Group C. Yeah. Which was which you know, they still were, they were just pure prototype, real, you know, man's cars, to softer prototypes to GT cars. You know, when in '95 when McLaren won with the F1 at Le Mans, okay, it was, it was because it was a damp race, I think, but yeah. still it was a great car. You know, GT1 had that massive sort of surge until it went away. I went think disappeared. The, the CLK GTR put, put an end to it, but. Um, but it, you know, it then went back to prototypes. If you remember, then it was suddenly the Audi R8, and then it yeah. was the Bentley, and then it was the the later R, right now, R whatever yeah. the Audis were, and yeah, and then the Porsche. So it was very much prototypes. And I'm quite excited about the talk of oh. those sort of you know super hypercars yeah. coming back to Le Mans. But I, I think the one problem that everyone's overlooking at the moment is that the 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 cost of a new hypercar is so high that. Who on earth is going to put the money up to buy one of those to go racing? And I think that's I think that's a problem because Aston have pulled out of yeah. of racing at Le Mans with the the Valkyrie, and I remember hearing you know they're trying. I didn't realize this was a thing, but they pre-sell the cars, or some people do pre-sell their race cars to customers. So they're like, "Can will you buy a Valkyrie race car for four and a half million euros? And in four years' time, when we're finished racing with it, you will get a new." ish Valkyrie that race may car. have won its class that may or may yeah. not have done anything but we want the money now and you yeah. won't get it for a bunch of years and then it's quite difficult to know when to get onto that train isn't it like before they've done their first test before they've had the balanced yeah. performance given to them yeah I, that's I mean it's definitely in recent years something I've heard of a lot especially with the general GT cars like 458s and yeah. 488s I've heard a lot of people you know fronting the money basically and saying I will buy the car after the race but yeah, that's that is the problem with the hypercar thing. I, I just think the initial value is is just it's unobtainable. It's big, um, and it's obviously running something like that. Yeah, it's going to be you huge. know. And people say to me, "Are you worried about racing historic cars and their values?" Uh, yeah, absolutely. But we don't race them at ten tenths. Yeah, you know, and, and that is not in the back of your mind, but it's programmed into you when you at jump. All? At all? You, of course, yes, it is. As, as you're going across the grass backwards, you think. About it. But, no, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like you're saying, you don't race like flat out. I, I, I well, I, I are you like a notch? It's before consciously a notch. It's down? before you get in the car, you know what you're getting into, and you yeah. race it at a certain speed. So, you know, so, yeah, certain cars you will make a move. Uh, so actually, certain cars, certain race meetings, and certain events, you will drive to a different level than you will elsewhere. You know, yeah. Goodwood. I am. 8.5 out of 10. Yeah. And that's a really difficult one, Goodwood, because it's so high profile now that you yeah. want to do well there because you want people to see you doing well to maybe drive their cars in the yeah. future. And it is actually really good for business. You know, people laugh that it's, you know, you get to race these cars. Yeah. But it is really good for business because people call me up and they say, you don't know me, but I've seen you on the TV. Yeah. I've seen you, you know, at Goodwood in the paddock. 
I'd like to buy a TT car yeah. or I'd, I'd like you to sell my car because you see you, you clearly seem, seem to be into this and you know what familiar. you're doing yeah. yeah and it's a big part isn't it you know I think if you're if you're buying and selling old cars you've got to actually be able to offer real advice as opposed to something that you've heard from someone else you know, yeah. it has to be first hand advice maybe that's why I don't like Lamborghinis that much because whenever I've driven Lamborghinis I've always been terribly disappointed yeah <laughs> uh, we were talking about another 911 base car i think that's the same yeah. sort of thing that you know it, I, i've jumped in in them and wanted them to be really good i've jumped in an sv mirror and thought yeah. i really want this to be good and then it's not and yeah. so that's that's why i'm not the best place to offer advice on those yeah, particular I drove cars a, an lp640 recently with an e-gear or whatever and it was one of the worst things i've ever been in but equally i'm not in the mindset I think you have to have a certain mindset. Like you approach a car with how you think it should be. And if you approach, like like saying you were saying earlier, if you drive an old car and you think it's going to be like a, a new car, like if you drive a 70s 911 and expect it to be like a modern GT3 RS, it's not. Mm. So you need to dispel that myth. Although unless you've driven a three litre RS, which is mind-blowing. If you ever jump into a 1974 yeah. three litre RS especially having driven the 2.7 RS just beforehand, yeah. you, you are you cannot believe there's only a year between. Significant difference. It's unbelievable. And you think you're in a 964. It's yeah. that good. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a side piece. I know yeah. someone who bought one maybe a year ago and he was he was very, very happy. Yeah. I Personally, I love the 2.8. RSR. RSR. Yeah. But a lot of people like the three the three litres. I, th- I think the thing about the three litre is just so obviously different. Yeah, you know, you, if you put it next to the two point seven, you, and you say this is the car it replaced. Obviously, two eights in between, but that was for racing purposes, as the three liter was. But yeah. the three liter was there was a road version, or rather, they were all basically road cars mm. that you could race. It, when you put them next to each other, they're just it's so radically it's different. So different, you know. And I, I guess it, it's the difference between, in a really weird way, a three five five and um, a three sixty. You know, yeah. they were so different, weren't they? And there's yeah. a year between them. That's that's what the two seven versus the uh, three liters like. Although you know the three liter, it's just yeah, as I said, you jump out of it and you think that could be a nine six four. Just so different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but great cars. It's funny that. Um, anyway, we got sidetracked. Yeah, we have. I, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is is restorations, and I imagine a lot of owners will. Well, first of all, like, what is the process? for a restoration of a car, like like vaguely. If you said, if I came to you and said, right, I want a nut and bolt restoration of whatever, I don't know. Well, you've hit the nail on the head there with the Something. first comment because you've said nut and bolt. That, In my mind, that is the only way to restore a car. Okay. Uh, now and again, we get pulled into the awkward situation of having to half restore a car. Right. So by that, I mean, for example, 275 GTB. Yeah and you take it back to bare metal and you take the engine out and you take the gearbox out and you restore those bits and you repaint it. And, but you don't actually take it back to a bare shell. Right. And I think people think that they're saving money to get the same result, but they're not. Because, you know, you'll look at that car afterwards and it's just not a fully restored car and, they, and you can tell it immediately. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, it's something I really don't want to do. And, I, and, and Dad and I are very much of that opinion in this business. But obviously when you need... Yeah, we do need we do have a yeah. workshop to feed. You can't turn work away. And today, you know, labor costs, the cost of running a business, 
parts so much more you know a full restoration yeah. of a 250 of some description is a 400,000 pound plus restoration yeah. today uh, that's is, a lot of money is, plus a VAT is the a restoration of any car a similar amount of money like in terms of like the sliding scale i i often hear like okay you know so and so wants to restore x but actually there's basically no point because unless they've got loads of money and they specifically want to restore that car, you basically don't gain much value by restoring it. Mm. Whereas there'll be cars that you can restore and the restoration in itself, you get more than that back when you sell it. Are there many cars where that's the case or generally it's just the owner would like it looking new? Um, I would say that there aren't, that the only time that you have, well, let me rephrase that. I would say that those cases are rare. And it gem- generally would be a higher value car that yeah. that also somehow you're putting it right. Okay. So an example may be that it doesn't have its original engine anymore, but yeah. you manage to reunite it with it. And during the course of a restoration, you do that. Or at some point, uh, again, using the 275 as an example, you know, a short nose 275, at some point in the late 60s, early 70s, someone put a long nose on it to make it look like the yeah. more desirable later car. Funnily enough today that, you know, some people prefer a short nose, and I do actually. Yeah. I think a short nose is a is the pure original form. I, I love the look of them. So you might put it back to short nose mm. as part of a restoration, and therefore add some value because beforehand everyone said, "Oh, the problem with that car is." Whereas it's you, a modified, you, you eliminate that. You you put yeah. it back to standard, back to correct spec. That that can make sense. But in terms of straight restoration, you know, because it needs a restoration. Is there value in buying a car that needs restoration and then doing the restoration and, and the yeah. outcome is is more value? Really very rare, very yeah. rare. And mainly because a restoration will always cost more than you think. Yeah, And that's why you can't accurately price a restoration, especially on a Ferrari, because they're complicated in terms of their construction. Uh, it's very, very difficult to accurately price a restoration to within 50,000. <laughs> Which sounds so <laughs> crazy. But, but uh, you know, but once the car is stripped you know, into a to a bare shell, yeah, and then the engine's been stripped and the body's been blasted and, an and stripped. Then from that point forwards, we can say, okay, this is these are the obstacles and the surprises yeah. we've got, and we can price it from there. But then again, Ferraris are higher value cars, so it's a You're little bit more forgiving. With expensive cars, yeah. But you know, on, I often when I'm walking around with people here, I explain that the beauty of a Ferrari is that you restore it. Whereas if you were restoring a Jaguar or a Aston Martin from the sixties you'd be amazed at how much of the restoration is replacement parts. Right. You know, throughout the car. The same with a 911, actually, you know, a 911. And a 911 is simpler to restore because it's so easy to pull apart. You yeah. know, the engine and gearbox, you can literally drop out in a few hours or probably less. Yeah. I think Tuthill can do it in 12 minutes or something <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. And then you get it back to a bare shell and you can blast or dip the complete shell in one go. Whereas a Ferrari, you know, it's a long process getting the engine mm. out and getting the gearbox out and stripping the suspension off, you know, on the Porsche, the rear, you know, the rear drivetrain comes yeah. out as one. You've just got all your sort of link arms yeah, and things. Mm. And then, you know, if it's a later Ferrari with fiberglass floors, then you've got to separate those from the, from the shell itself. And then mm. there's no parts on the shelf body part wise. Whereas a 911, if you need new wings, you buy them and yeah. you fit them, you know, yeah, that's exactly. where the savings are. So it's, it, it you know, and going back to the point I made about the cost of restoration these days is so much more. You know, there is a very short supply of Ferrari parts, but then again, you don't need them. You've got to restore them. But then that comes down to hours. And, um, you know, when you... So when, when you say you're not replacing, you're restoring, 
What does that involve? Does that mean you're welding on new bits and reforming and stuff like that? It's 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 really it comes down to the mechanical components. So you might a good example is on a Ferrari you may restore the suspension in its entirety in terms of the wishbones, the shock absorber, the uprights, you know, they'll be crack yeah. tested and all that sort of stuff. And you'll replace the bearings and the parts that wear out. But on a Jaguar or an Aston Martin or a Porsche, you'll replace a lot more of the those parts thing, yeah. with yeah, with a part that's readily available on the on the shelf and is, you know, the fraction of the cost of restoring the equivalent yeah. Ferrari part because you've got to put twenty hours in. Yeah. So, yeah. Twenty hours, that could be somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand yeah. pounds. Whereas the replacement part from Porsche is two hundred and sixty quid. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's those are not accurate numbers, but Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. Sort of understand. And you know, again, with a Jaguar E-Type, for example, there are so many parts of the body shell that are available. Mm. So, you know, you may have rotten sills, rotten floors. You can buy, you know, even the bulkhead. You can buy yeah. the bulkhead and then fit it into the tub as it's being restored. If you had to go that far with a Ferrari, it's very, very expensive. And, yeah. and, it, and it comes down to the way in which they were manufactured. And I think when people see like a... Yeah, we we didn't actually talk about it, but in one of the showrooms, we walked past a rolling chassis of a '50s Ferrari. Yeah, when people see that, they they say, "What is that?" And you say, "That's yeah, it's a 250 Tour de France rolling <laughs> chassis," and, and they're shocked because they don't realise, and they and they're sort of like, "Well, where's where are the floors?" Well, they come later, you know, because the body goes on, and then the floors go in, and they're fitted, and it's they're welded in. It's and then if you were restoring it, you'd have to take all those out. So it's a much bigger job than when you just look at a 911 shell or an shell. Yes. Yeah, redone, dipped, whatever. Yeah, it's a really different thing. But I think that's why Ferrari was so successful racing because they had mm. these really strong, rugged, rugged cars that had a you know, good, reliable engine and just yeah. went the distance. It wasn't necessarily about being technically the best car. It really was, as Enzo said, it was about the engine and it was about, you know, it was about being strong yeah. and reliable and getting to the end of the race. And yeah, you just, it's, you know, we're lucky that we've, we've restored other cars as well and you, you see other cars when they come apart and Ferrari really did it right, I think. And it's not just, it's not always about being technically the best car. It's about having the right idea yeah. on balance. Do you work all the way up to the modern cars? Yes. So we see everything except stuff these days that's seven years old or newer. Okay. Because all of that stuff has free servicing and yeah. and five-year warranties now from Ferrari, which which suits us actually. It's, you know, it's a great, that's a great system for us. And as I understand, for the main dealers, it's not such a good system. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's very difficult for them to earn their money back. So that gives us a, a, you know, a, a stop point for the workshop, which is useful. Which is rolling. Yeah. And um, I think actually the, the main dealers pay more attention to the older cars now than they did. Yeah. I think before it was very much that as soon as they're out of warranty, they weren't really interested. But obviously the big saving grace for us is our, our labour rate is so much lower. Yeah. And even our labour rate, which is expensive in comparison in comparison to other historic car specialists yeah. from other parts of the industry, other brands. Compared to a Ferrari main dealer, we are, you know, so significantly. Much, yeah, significantly significantly less. But sales wise, we'll sell anything Ferrari wise from forty seven up to twenty twenty. Yeah. I was having a little dig through your Instagram and I have to applaud you actually for taking the effort and time to employ actual photographers, namely Mr. Penfold actually to take good photos of cars. And now like your Instagram feed looks very nice and it's got all these great pictures of all these cars that you've sort of sold over the last, I don't know, period of time. Whereas most people don't seem to 
appreciate. Have you noticed a difference between going that extra mile? I'm not, really sure, I'm not really sure I should admit it because then other, all, all our competitors might copy us. Yeah, but they're, prob- <laughs> they're, they're probably you know not going to listen to this podcast. I, I think Instagram's a really funny thing and it's a great thing, by the way, and it's it has changed our business in recent years. It all started, I can't even remember how long ago it was, but I guess it was, if I scroll back to the first photo on our Instagram yeah. feed, seven years ago, and it was my girlfriend at the time, she, she had Instagram and yeah. she was talking about it and people were getting on it and... And I thought, well, actually, the, what people like to see is pictures of nice cars, yeah. you know. And, and our website, you could, when you have a website, you can't just put pictures, no. interesting pictures on. I think on the blog, front page, blogs were kind of going in that way, but but as you say, on the front page, it's on the front page of the site. It's yeah. you know that's your front of house. Instagram's this really nice way of showing people behind the scenes, yeah, but also showing them what you want them to see. But actually. And I think a lot of businesses would do that. What you see on our Instagram is real. You know, that is, yeah. that is the way we work. And, and, and we, you know, we have a policy here with our employees that, you know, you're allowed to post on Instagram pictures of what's going on at work and what you've seen, mm. as long as you've seen it on our Instagram or our website. Okay. So, you know, there was a certain Enzo downstairs that we yeah. saw earlier that I wouldn't want anyone to yeah. see was here, but I haven't posted it. So no one else will. Yeah. That's a good policy. And it works, you know, because it, because obviously my parents petrified, you know, sort yeah. of it's it's client confidentiality. It's yeah. how do we deal with this? It's something scary. It's something we really don't understand. You know, I noticed that they they have Instagram accounts because suddenly I have like fifteen yeah. likes from Decot, something <laughs> or other. You know, they're they're definitely having a look. Um, but it all started from that, and then it just grew and grew and grew, and it got to the point where about a year ago I realised that I need to log all these messages that I get via Instagram yeah. on our CRM because I hadn't been up until then. And I was thinking all these people that are actually genuinely interesting yeah. cars and you know, everyone is on there. Everyone is on everyone there. is on there, but people are more conspicuous than others. And, and that, you know, for me, that was a bit of a worry because <laughs> about two years ago, my best friend's fiance said to me, who on earth are XXX, yeah. a certain other business. Yeah. And I said, well, they're, they do what we do, sort of. Yeah. But why do you ask? They said they followed me on Instagram, and I realised it's because in the early days, obviously, I followed my close friends yeah. first, and then it was all it was following clients and things yeah. like that. And someone had gone to who we were following and followed them. and just followed every single person. So I, I sort of had a bit of a cull and yeah. protected, you know, because yeah, you've got friends, to protect family, contacts. whatever, or people and stuff. But we, you know, it's amazing. We'll put cars on Instagram, and people will see it immediately and phone up. You know, the, yeah. we were talking about the Carrera GTs that we've had of late. All of those, you know, cars that, or the Carrera GTs we sold this year, we sold three cars within a week of advertising them, and it, every single one, the first point of contact was Instagram. Yeah, uh, it's so it's powerful. huge. It's so powerful. But going back to the photographers, you know, I was always sort of posting photos, but they were a bit samey. Yeah, and I didn't want it to be samey. I wanted to give it a bit of a new dimension. And as we started this this chat you know our business was started by enthusiasts who wanted to help mm. out other enthusiasts who wanted to still love and enjoy the cars you know and as a family we have 20 cars of our own and you know the racing we do is for enjoyment as well yeah. and the concourse events we go to are for enjoyment and all that stuff we do so they go it goes very well hand in hand with that and you know i think seeing the cars in motion is is an important thing and the relationship that we have with alex you know has gone back a long way i remember and, and obviously Luke, who works yeah, yeah. with us here, you know, one of our first open days in 2008. I like to think that we invented these sort of open days and cars and coffee <laughs> things because 
it was an it was a way to drum up business. Yeah, for sure. In 2008, we had just moved here. We'd spent a lot of money on the premises, and the phone didn't ring because of the credit crunch. Yeah. And in the March of sorry, it was 2009. March of 2009, we we said, how can we generate some service work? And one of the Ferrari Owners Club guys said, you should get everyone over to see your premises because they're fabulous. Yeah. And like, there's nothing else like this out there. So we did, and it grew and grew. And I remember that first day, Luke and Alex came along, yeah. and it was before spotting and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. But they were just really keen guys and they came and did bits and pieces for us over the years. And so as part of Luke being with us, and that's Luke Gilbertson, better known as You're Not My Father, yeah. spelt wrong uh, on Instagram. As part of him being here, I was sort of trying to grow that side of yeah. getting out to the newer generation of buyers and collectors. We've worked with Alex a lot more and it's it's been really good. And obviously we've done a lot with GF Williams in the past and yeah. Uh, you know, other guys that come as a result of Classic Driver, Tom Shaxton, he's followed yeah. a number of restorations for us, working with a new guy at the moment on some restorations only because he's local, so he can mm. just pop him yeah, drop the hat. Scott Patton, who's you know really talented photographer as well, and unfortunately not not done a great deal with you, I'm afraid. No, but, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it, you know, but it's always come from introductions. Yeah. And, you know, it's a great way to get young people into the industry. I think that's the other thing I've always been keen on is sort of the next generation. Where where do these guys come from? And yeah, I the, think the guys that like cars and spot, spotted cars five you know, five ten years yeah. ago are some of the best photographers we have in the industry now. Yeah, totally. And that's and that passion, like building that passion in young people. Like, there's so many super passionate young people, and there's quite a lot of companies that are really closed doors. Like they sort of try and pretend they don't exist almost, and they a bit iffy about letting you come and have a look round and all that. And, you know, fast forward some years, the companies that l are approachable and seem like nice people and let anyone, you know, come and have a look round. Obviously you don't want a hundred million people all the time, but showing these cool cars to younger people. And the one I always talk about is like, let's say modern dealerships. The Lamborghini dealership in South Kent, which is just down the road from me, historically, you have to buzz to get in. And yeah. a lot of dealerships, you have to buzz to get in, even though they're on the high street, which stops 99% of people. I think you have to, most people get to that barrier and go like, mm. I feel like we've given Lamborghini a really hard time here. Ferrari the are the same. <laughs> like all, all of the dealerships, quite often, it's a really like uninviting atmosphere. I think... I mean, this this could open a complete new topic, but I think the future of showrooms on the high street or in prominent areas is very bleak. Yeah. For and that's one of the reasons. You know, it it really should be, you know, it really should be about the people that want to come and have a look as opposed to the passers-by, and it's so difficult to differentiate between that. So I feel for yeah. those guys in that situation. And uh, I had a friend that worked at JD Classics when they had their yeah. Mayfair showroom. And he was a really talented salesman. He'd been at many other places. He's he's in business on his own now. And um, and he, I remember him saying to me, oh, you know, I'm just fed up with being a curator. Yeah. You know, one in 20 people that comes in. And they were, you know, they were on, I can't remember what it was called now, just behind um, the Connaught. You know, yeah. so it was, a, it was a link street. It wasn't on a yeah. main street. But he said the number of people that just come in and are, frankly, you know, a waste of time when we're in business to sell yeah. cars, not be a museum. It was a it was a problem, and I think that comes back to the photographers again. One of the reasons that I've really pushed that of late, and and, yeah. and you know across the business and with the restorations as well, is so that people can through Instagram have a look 
inside our business, but without having to come and see yeah. us. Uh, and I'm not saying that we, you know, we don't show everyone round. And last year we had to adopt a policy that I would say every day someone emails on the website and says we would like to come and have a look yeah. round. And people are very good about it. And they say, look, I'm not going to come and buy a car. I'd just yeah. like to come and have a look round. What we do now is we do a draw. So we say to people, okay, yeah. you know, every six months we're going to do a draw. We'll we'll probably have between five and ten people, and it'll be pulled out of a hat. And after that, it's reset. And if yeah. you want, to, and if you weren't lucky enough to be pulled out of the hat, then and you do an open day every now and then, do again. Yeah, open days. We don't do the big open days anymore because they just got out of control. Yeah. So we will have three or four select Saturday morning yeah. coffee mornings for between thirty and fifty people. So supercar driver come, yeah. have a, a a meet here once. We're doing one with Ferrari Owners Club. We're doing one with Jeremy Jackson Sitner, who runs like a car rally mm-hmm. thing, um, and they're they're going to come and uh, you have a morning here in the, in the same way. So we try and do those. But one of the unfortunate things of our business setup, having not all the showrooms on one site, is obviously we don't have everything here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to have everything here, but because we're so close to London, the green belt makes it very difficult to build stuff. And it actually, when it from a sales point of view, it works quite well because you can give someone the full tour, and then. You'll often find someone will say, you know, that first showroom we went to, that Lamborghini, can I go and have a look? I mean, I'm I'm saying Lamborghini because I feel sorry that we've been a bit harsh. This does happen, by the way. We do sell Lamborghinis. I'm not. (laughs) Can I go and have a look at that again? Yeah. And and, and we will. And that works quite well. Whereas if you think about it. They get time to mull over it a bit. Whereas if you put someone in a showroom that has 40 cars in. Yeah. They try and, you know, look at what, you know, unless you can look at one by one. It's very difficult yeah. to take in all the information and you'll miss half the cars. Yeah. And then afterwards you'll be in the car driving home with your mate and they'll say, did you see that really nice 16M? Yeah. And I said, I didn't even yeah, notice what? it. You know, whereas when you split yeah, it. Yeah, it is quite different- nice walk. The way the buildings are sort of set up, you've got to sort of walk through one building into another, into, into another, yeah. another. It's a journey. And it's like, you can only take in four cars at a time or something. And, you know, you show me around, you can tell me a little bit of story about each one and you get a little bit of information. But yeah, it's totally, you walk into a massive showroom where there's a hundred cars in one room. You're just like, but yeah, it's super <laughs> impressive for a photo, but to actually take that in and you know, we're great friends with the guys that run Salon Privé. And one of the things I said to them last year is the really good thing about Pebble beach is you can, in your head, treat it like a supermarket and you can go down each aisle. Yeah. Whereas you guys have got it completely jumbled up. And, and I, I was there for three days with a stand I didn't take in half of the cars because yeah. I couldn't work out how to <laughs> navigate the field and take in every single one. Yeah. And they said, and they spoke to, I can't remember what you call them, but people that design shops. Yeah. And they they came back and they were like, yeah, you're totally right. We've done this all wrong. So we'll change it. You know, because it is really difficult when you put someone in front of 50 cars. Yeah. How do you know which one to start with and which order to do it in? Obviously, you get distracted. Yeah. You, you suddenly see in the corner, I've always really liked those. And you go over there and then you forget. It's, I find uh, the events at Bista Heritage, I, I like quite often how when they do sort of smaller events and they have cars, select cars in different places, as a, you know, sort of photographer type person, I love that because each car gets its own scene. But you definitely at that sort of event, you get to the point, you might come back and someone will be like, well, did you see Lewis Hamilton's F1 car? Like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, it was like around the back, around there. Like, what? Yeah. So it sort of goes both ways. Yeah. But then again, that means you go back. Yeah, and and I would way prefer that setup. Like yeah. I love what um, Lifticult have been doing with, with their, their different with venues, their events. just Amazing. like crazy different venues. Amazing. Yeah, I liked that the one in uh, in the film studios just looked. Ah, it looked mega, incredible. 
Yeah. And then they, the one before that was like some sort of like a wood chopping factory. site factory yeah. thing. Yeah. He's like, oh, this is this is cool. Yeah. And Very like cool. properly curated. Yeah. But but going back to it, I think, you know, the future of this industry, I mean the modern cars, I don't think it's long before people, you know, they may go into a shop on a high street to 3D visualize the car yeah. that they're spe- specking, but you won't go to a dealership anymore to do that. You'll just yeah. it'll all be there'll be no car there. You'll just put the put the goggles on and have a look, and they'll say what color interior did you mm. want? And that's how you spec it, and they'll deliver it to your house. You know, I've got a new Ford GT, and that's I never went anywhere. Yeah, you know, I had an, we had an interview. My friend Andrew and I that owned the car together. We had an interview, like a conference call yeah. on the internet. The guy showed us the different specs, and we chose the spec. <laughs> Did you get the little spec box? Got the spec box, but yeah. but then, you know, then online they did the other, you know, the different thing. Yeah. And then six months later, some bloke turns up with a lorry and the, the, the concierge guy's there and they <laughs> hand it over and they give you a proper hand, yeah. which is great. And that was it. And we put it in the garage and... There we go. There we go. It remained delivery mileage for the whole winter. <laughs> <laughs> we have actually, we've done 300 miles in it now, but... I do, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because I think now people are way more comfortable buying stuff over the internet. Yeah. Um, well, so this is where we were going. Sorry. I just don't think, and uh, I, I don't know if you know who Tony Willis is, who used to run Marinello yeah. um, concessionaires back in the day. Super, super nice guy. And, you know, been in the trade his whole mm. life. And he said to me the other day, I just do not understand all these companies building these 10 million pound showrooms because in 10 years, they're going to be redundant. People won't, won't use them unless it's for used cars. Yeah. And I think that that is the future of this industry is you've got to get really good at presenting your cars detailing the history and the condition. And it's a combination of stuff I've seen around the world. You know, Fantasy Junction in San Francisco for years and years and years. On the internet, I wouldn't do this on the internet because it sort of looks a bit messy, but they would put pictures of the underneath of the car. Okay. So, you know, they'd have the photo, the beauty shots, and then yeah. as you scroll down at the bottom, there's a picture of it on the ramp and you're looking yeah. underneath the car and it just simplifies things. Yeah. People want to ask you a few questions and then you can answer them quickly and then they yeah. make a decision. And that, you know, uh, and with the website, it quite often frustrates me where you've got loads of pictures, loads of information, and someone wrote, writes to you and says, I'm interested in more information. Yeah. Because it's their standard inquiry yeah. line. And you think, well... Yeah, have you have you read it? it the, like the whole history is detailed <laughs> and there's 50 pictures. I'm not sure what else I can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a video. I don't know. But yes, video. And then some people always want to talk to someone and they want to be like, tell me about this car, sell me this car. Yeah. Like, well, all the information today, do you want it or not? Yeah, yeah, I guess. And I guess because of the internet and emails and because I've been doing this the amount of time I have, I've seen the switch from people calling up to pretty much 90% of inquiries come via email. Yeah, If someone phones, they're probably 75% actually going to buy that car. Yeah, They've done all the stuff. For me nowadays, unless it's a new car, which is pretty rare, if I'm buying something... I know pretty much what I'm after, like yeah. quite specifically. And the more information I have about that, I'm pretty much sold. If I'm calling someone, I'm pretty much there. Yeah. Like it's just like, don't mess this up. The car needs to be what you've said it is. And if it's what you said it is, I'm going to buy it. But then on the flip side, you know, emails, I'll reply to 100%, well, 99%. You may miss one. Yeah. You'll reply to 99% and you'll only hear back from somewhere between 2 and 5% of those guys ever again. Yeah. I don't get to the point where you recognise the email address and they've never replied to you and they've inquired on 10 yeah. cars in two years. And you think, who is this guy? Like, I, I'm actually quite intrigued now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so going back to it, you know, all the way back to Instagram, the photographers, it's about 
presenting the cars in different light, letting people into the doors of D. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And seeing what we do and making people realise how much we do. You know, yeah. I really genuinely, genuinely believe that we are the only Ferrari specialist in the world that offer the complete service, you know, right up to seven years old. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's storage, potential race preparation, restoration, sales, service, or, the, you know, the management of that whole thing in terms yeah. of whatever you want to do to do with your Ferrari that's between seven and, you know, 70 years old. We can help you. We will look after that for you. You can just trust us to do that. That's really important. And having the, the, all the history together and presenting the cars, as I said, and just letting people mm. see as much as they can. It's, it's, it's the future. I, I think people will visit us and again. Think about this virus. <laughs> I think people will visit us less and less. Yeah. I think people visit us a lot because of our location. You know, we're just outside London. Yeah. We're on the tube. We're very close to Heathrow. People visit us a lot, but that's going to decline. And, you know, you need to be ready for that. And videography we've seen of late, you know, we've been doing it for years, I think on our YouTube channel, which frustrates me. It's got so many, so few followers, DK Engineering TV <laughs> on YouTube. Um, you know, we've been doing it for years. I think we've got 93 videos we've done over the yeah. years. But Are they interesting? Are they interesting? They're varied. You know, there's, there are, I would say there are, there are, 10 very good videos yeah, on yeah. there. You know, there's one about short wheelbase restoration. Yeah. There's one about 857S. There are some very good yeah, videos yeah. in there. And I, I, I've just, I think maybe we were too early. Yeah. Too early to it. And we, you know, we'll probably Gosh. do three or four videos. Doing a year. every now and then. Yeah. But other, I've noticed that some other guys have started doing them a lot more of late and it, it's working. So, you know, maybe YouTube's having a resurgence. Yeah. The right, the right video at the right time does does wonders but equally you can do the right video and it just for some reason doesn't click with the internet and you're like oh well but then if you're happy with it you have to just sort of be happy with what you've done and you're like well i enjoyed that and i think it was good and people will see it yes and if you, and if you have the ability to create a video that's timeless so yeah. it's not relevant to now it could be interesting to someone to watch in five years time then then that's really good material to have and if someone's you know you don't need that many customers a year re relative to the worldwide population and so if your youtube videos are only being watched by people that actually in the end of the day come through the there doors yeah then you don't need that many people to see your video yeah and it could be people searching dk and it's just part of your you know it's part of your online profile and perception and they're like oh they do things properly or whatever, you know, whatever. This is how they do it. Yeah. Uh, all of that stuff, as I said just now, it's, it's about 
showing people how much we do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think we'll, yeah, we'll definitely get busy with videos again soon, especially with what's going on at the moment. I think that's the way we're going to pass the time over the next month. It is a lot of it's a lot of work though, isn't it? Yeah. What gets you going in terms of cars? Because obviously you get to see like tons of Ferraris on a daily basis of, of the full range. What gets you excited? I guess anything that has a really good story. Okay. So the so the Barquetta that we looked at, that's yep. that's that's the Mille Mille and Le Mans winner from 1949. It's one of the first 20 Ferraris built, full stop. Yeah. And it's the only car to have won both those races in existence. And it's the first Ferrari to have won both of those races. So it is the car that put Ferrari on the map in 1949. Yeah. It's potentially the most significant Ferrari in existence. So when we were lucky enough to be chosen to look after that car last year and yeah. it came here from America, I was so excited, you know, like it was in the workshop and I'd go down and look at it. And every time someone, you know, came to see us and I'd show it to them. Yeah. And, and the guys in the workshop, you know, I'd make sure they, underst- they understood and appreciated how special that car was. That sort of situation still gets me really excited. You know, cars I haven't seen before, but I've, I've known about them for a long time. Racing cars, of course, you know, a great racing car is always exciting. But yeah, I think that, I think cars with a story that I haven't seen before. I've been lucky enough to Mm. see a lot of Ferraris over the years, or also cars that I knew well when I was much younger and I haven't seen for a long time. That, That gets me going as well. Kind of like old friends coming back. Exactly. Definitely. Definitely, definitely. Uh, one of the cars we looked at, you know, that we were talking about the stripe over the roof of that yeah. short wheelbase. You know, I remember that car as a kid. When, <laughs> you know, the guy that owned it was super cool. He was um, he was only 24 years old when he bought that car. Yeah. And he asked dad to, to help him find a car and he did and he restored it for him and then it lived with us for a long time. And then it went away for 15 years. Mm. And I, saw, I used to see it at concourse events in America, but it wasn't quite the same. And then when our client bought it and it came back again, it was sort of like an old friend coming home. It was... Mm. Yeah, and the Walt Disney Tour de France, which we didn't actually talk about, but you know that car we owned in the nineties, and then seven seven or so years ago, I bought it back for a client, and it's we've re restored it, and it lives with us. And again, you know, I get I get excited yeah. about that, having been around these cars all my life. You know, as I said earlier, one of my earliest childhood memories is being yeah, in yeah. the Comte Daytona, going up the M twenty five. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so and and then finally an F forty. Yeah, when the workshop phoned me and say my days are so frantic and they say we've got an f40 we want you to road test it and the first reaction is always like oh i don't really have time for this but then you know you pull out of here turn right go to join the main road turn left it's a 60 limit you know put your foot down put your foot on foot down and you just think oh these are so good (laughs) still so good and then when you have slow down you think oh blimey yes yeah that's (laughs) it it's so unbelievably bad at boosting and powerful and then so so bad yeah. it's stopping but there is a solution there is a solution now and that is a ceramic disc and pad change that okay. fits in the standard wheel yeah. in the standard caliper we're going to be doing some tests with those later on this year Interesting. I so i think that's the solution and it'll look and because of the design of the wheel it'll look the same it'll look the same you won't know and these these particular ceramic discs they yeah. they have a, a bright shine to them so it'll be interesting to see what you know how they how they work but um but yeah that that gets me going you know when you get back and i love i love the way that an f40 is the only car that is the car when you get back and you sort of put it away and you take take the key out and shut the door you always think to yourself i'm really lucky that i made it home <laughs> <laughs> yeah always and the, such a fizz driving it yeah so still nuts which i think is the bit for me when i've gone and driven mine and i don't drive it very often 
it's the I get out of it and I'm still just sort of sit there and go, but that was made like 40 years ago mm. or whatever it is, 30 years ago. It was um, penned 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. They produced 30 years ago. It still feels unbelievably quick. And how many cars can you do that in five to 10 kilometers? I get no. that feeling. And that's this thing when I'm selling them, because obviously we've sold, I, I like to think we've sold more than anyone else. Well, I'm pretty <laughs> sure we have. I know that someone else thinks they've sold more, which I find confusing. But um, maybe you've sold both, you've all sold the same cars. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, people say to me, well, it's too low mileage. I want to drive it. And I always say, I guarantee, maybe in the first year, and you can tell me how, yeah. how you've got on with this, I'll say, I guarantee, maybe in the first year you'll do a thousand kilometers. I guarantee you won't do more. Yeah, And I guarantee that every year after that, you'll do somewhere between a maximum of 100 and 200 kilometers a year. And that's it. Yeah, And they always look at me and they say, you're mad. Like, of course not. And then they end up buying a car and it might be five, 10, 15,000 yeah. kilometers. And then we end up, you know, servicing it two, three, four years later. And you look at the mileage and you just drop them an email and say, I see that you've managed to do 600 kilometers in your three years of ownership. How's that been? <laughs> Um, and they have enjoyed it, yeah. but it's one of those cars that you don't need to go 190 miles an hour in. No. You don't need to do 50 miles in to really enjoy it. You will literally, I always call it my Sunday morning after breakfast blast. You know, it's your 100%. Sunday morning after breakfast blast, 20 kilometers, and you'll get back and you'll say, that's enough. Like yeah. I, my heart's beating a lot. Yeah. And uh, I feel like I've been on the edge enough. <laughs> yeah. And that's it, isn't it? I mean, how many kilometers have you done in how many I, years? I haven't, I haven't done very many. Yeah. Um, but you've enjoyed it. Slightly self-limiting, but at the same time, it is, is, and I've said to everyone that asked me about it, I'm like, it is unbelievable. I have not driven a car, like personally, I haven't driven a car that's that intense over the right road, the right time. But the rest of the time, I, like, put me on a motorway, not interested. Driving around town, not interested. And where I keep it, I can turn out of where it is and within three minutes I'm on a good B road or whatever and I will drive it for half a day 40 minutes half an hour and I'll come back and I will literally be buzzing off that for the next like three months and come on how many kilometers not a lot like 100 300 no I've done I don't know I think I've done maybe a thousand I think I've probably done 800 miles in not a long time. Three, four like years? Is four, it? four years, yeah. something like that. There we go. And most of them were in the first year? I did a lot in the first year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is pretty much. I'd say I, I probably drive a couple of hundred and miles that's great. a year. Like, and, and actually, you know, I follow you. So I see I see when you've used it and when yeah. you've done And I wouldn't say that you're someone that's, you know, not used the cars. And I can't, I mean, it's not a topic. It's probably, well, it might be a topic, but that's the one thing about Instagram that really is starting to wind me up is every time you put a low mileage car on all mm. these guys that say like complain about the fact that it's low yeah. mileage you think well you you don't know the circumstances of why yeah. it's low mileage and actually you know a lot of it does come down to money a lot of people have put a lot of money into these cars and they are a little bit afraid to use them because they there is a big difference between high and low mileage i love the idea of just driving at like ten thousand miles a year i say the yeah. idea i actually don't necessarily think i in its current state, with a loud exhaust, I couldn't drive it that long because you'd need. But new I, I, ears. I also think something else that people really have overlooked lately is how many cars people have today. Yeah, you know, when, yeah, when that's the, it. One of the first F40s I sold, 
yeah, nearly 20 years, well, 18, 17 years ago. It was to a guy that had a 355 spider mm. and he part exchanged his 355 spider. <laughs> and I think he gave us something like £45,000 on top of the 355 spider. Nice. And it, and it was like, that was the deal. Yeah. And, and that, that was price. his car. Yeah. And that was his car. And he probably did 3,000 kilometres yeah. in five years when he owned that car. And that was his car. But everyone you sell all these sorts of cars to that you talk about the mileage yeah. a lot have five or six cars. Yeah. And so you can't possibly use all of them. And lot. most people are time poor. These people are cash rich, time poor. Yeah. And you've got only a certain number of weekends yeah. a year, certain number of events, whatever. And I, I used to be this person be like, oh, this person doesn't drive this car at all. And then you realize, like, I know people that have like 30 cars. You're like, if you've got 30 cars, if, if, even if you've got five cars, even if you've got three cars, like your, your annual mileage is the same mm. and it just gets divided up and then you allocate it however you want to allocate it. And it's, I think that's possibly something that why now I look at my, my GT3 RS, for example, which I love, but in my head, I'm like, I don't drive it that much. And then in reality, I still drive the same number of miles a year, but it's because I use the, I use different cars and it just gets proportionally used a bit exactly. less. Exactly. And that was, that's my point, you know, is that lots of people have lots of cars. Most people that own these sorts of cars that we talk about the mileage have a lot of cars. If you're and buying one of these cars at the tough. price that they are now, yeah. you, you have yeah. a few and it, cars. And it's tough. You know, who, who, no, there's no one out there, I think, that we've sold an F42 in recent years that has no other cars. Yeah, it's yeah. very unlikely. Yeah. I think maybe one actually, but but then I, he sold it quite soon afterwards to buy a Carrera GT. Yeah. You know, so he was ticking boxes and that probably was yeah. his million pound budget for a supercar. Yeah. But it's a very different time again. You know, it's not 150,000 like it was mm. back then. They are a million pounds yeah. plus. Well, or minus, depending on what you're <laughs> On average. Yeah. No, it's 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 interesting. So normally, I think we're sort of, we're sort of we've sort of been getting, ooh, ooh, fair few minutes. When I sort of wrap up, I have five questions that I ask everyone. Are you ready? Yeah, and so I haven't prepared for this, so. Embarrassing. I haven't listened to any of your podcasts. Oh, yeah, but they're, you know, they're, they're well long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there may be some interesting ones, aren't there? Have, have a little flick through. Right, first question. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Um, yeah, I think I've got, I mean, same journey two or three different times, and that was in the good old days going to Le Mans. <laughs> Um, we, Back you know, when it was fun. Yeah. And my brothers are nine and 11 years older than me. So my brother is nine years older than me at that time, you know, at the time when we were doing it and I wasn't racing as I do now. So I won't really go to Le Mans now because I can't stand going and not racing. Not racing. You know, I'd love to do that yeah. race one day and I will go back, but I've not been for a number of years for that reason. Cause you just sort of get miserable. You know, it was a really have good, you, it was have you really ever good, raced there? I've, I've, I did a support race there, uh, in a Huracan GT3. Okay four years ago, I yeah. think. And I have also done a historic support race there probably three times, once yeah. in the GT40 and twice with my father in his 500 Testarossa. GT40 was awesome. We had such a good weekend. And that was a boys' trip. That's probably yeah. the last time I went, actually. Because we all went down and because it was before the race on the morning and we came second. We just, you know, had such had a good weekend. Weekends. Yeah. The What's most... GT40 like driving around the mall? Amazing. You... As as so Andrew Smith, who I own the car with, and mm. we've had it since 2012, 
he summed it up perfectly the first time we went there for the Le Mans Classic with it. Actually, no, sorry, it was for that race, I think, for the Le Mans Sport race. And he said, you know, the car's great. It's a racing car. Mm. It's different at different circuits. But when you get onto the Molstan straight for the first time in a GT40, you suddenly, something taps into you and says, this is what this car was made to do. And now I get it. Yeah. And that's it. You know, it's uh, at Le Mans, it's just, you know, I think we were doing at Le Mans Classic two years ago, I was doing 295 kilometers an hour in the dark, mm. having a flat out race with a guy called David Hart, who's a mad Dutchman, who is great, great friend, great guy, but he is utterly mad yeah. and has done the 24 hours. So in the dark, he was really good. <laughs> and at the end of it, you know, it was just, I just couldn't believe what I'd just been doing and living a sort of childhood That's dream. That's so cool. You know, and then the 5am race is always good when you go down the Mulsanne for the for the first time when the sun's just coming oh, yeah, up and you go through that mist time. and it's just so, so special. But going back to memorable driving trips. So we went, we used to go for boys trips and yeah. one of them was, I think it must have been 2003 or 2004 and a, and a Challenge Stradale and a 996 GT3 RS were both new cars. Mm. And luckily we had one of each. So we did that trip and it was oh, sick. it was around about the same time. And I can't remember if it was before, just before or just after, but Top Gear did the same comparison. Yeah, I th- I'd like to think it was before, but you'd be able to look up Le Mans 2003 yeah. or four. But anyway, it was, it was the same comparison, you know. And so we drove down in one each and then mm. we swapped for the way back. So that was very memorable because it was the first time I'd sort of really, you know, I was sort of grown up and... Yeah being given the responsibility of these, these amazing cars. cars that were new. And, and that's when you know, cars were getting exciting. Then That's yeah. really the start of the, for me, that I think that's the start of the lightweight revolution is the yeah. early noughties with like M3 CSL, GT3 RSs, Challenge Stradale. Yeah. That was a, it was a really good time, wasn't it? When you look back at the cars that came out then. Yeah, it was very cool. And all affordable. You know, you look yeah. at the cost of a Pista today in, in comparison to how much Challenge Stradale was new. Yeah, yeah, they made a lot more sense, didn't they? They weren't they that did. much more than the standard car. All and- of those cars, yeah. Like I look at like nine, my nine nine seven RS. I was looking at the uh, the invoice for it. I think it was like a hundred and five, something like <laughs> so that. So good, isn't it? You're like oh, I wish, I wish these cars were as available. Like no one, no one ordered them back then. I know. I think my car. Do you remember how difficult it was for them to sell CSLs? Yeah. Like I think you could, if you waited long enough, you could get one for. 20,000 under list yeah, as a brand exactly. new car. And then they were 30 grand forever. Yeah. Absolutely forever. And now, I mean, obviously they're, they're I think they're not as valuable as left-hand drive CSLs in the UK, which is, I don't really, really? understand. Yeah. So a left-hand drive CSL, I think is over a hundred grand. Well, wow. it certainly were a couple just of years because ago. The Europe, well, I guess it must mean the European market. They just get it. They get it. Yeah. And there, maybe there aren't that many. Yeah. Whereas here we've got a bit more than we yeah. need. Yeah. I mean, but another great car. So that was that was a memorable driving trip. And then a few years later, we did the same trip, but an F40 and an F50. Oh, and the deal was, and wow. I remember the F, the F, the F, you know, I look very young. So I, <laughs> and I must have been 23 at the time because the number plate. You'd still look young driving F40 <laughs> and F50. Well, exactly. And the number plate I remember on the F50 was N231CAN. And we were on the ferry on the way there. And that year we got the ferry from New Haven to Dieppe, I think, which yeah. is, so you basically get to nearly Brighton but it's actually a really once you come off the M25 it's a really good run mm. and I remember people saying to me what on earth are you doing in that F50 how can you how can you be in that you know, how old are you and I said oh, I'm 23 and that's <laughs> ridiculous and then one of them was like 
did you pay for that number plate then? Because it was N23 ICANN. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so the, uh, but I mean, they, again, they weren't huge money at the time. They were a lot of money, but they yeah. weren't nearly £2 million pounds yeah. that they are now. It was, if I hazard a guess, I think that car was probably late twos, you know, wow. like 290,000 or 300,000. Yeah. And, at, you know, back then we could afford to stock an Enzo, an F40, a 288 yeah. and an F50. Couldn't do that yeah, today, really. Yeah, those cars really. cost less than a lot it, of houses back then. Yeah, and, and you could have those cars and it was, you know, it was always it was always safe margin. It was, you'd buy the car for this much and you'd have a relatively small margin, but it was almost guaranteed yeah. because they were just steadily appreciating. And so my brother was in this F40, I was in the F50, and the deal was we would drive down in one car and then for the journey home afterwards, mm. we'd swap. But we had the biggest fight. Because I, I was in love with the F50 and I'd never really appreciated an F50 yeah. until then, but it was so good. And and so eventually he agreed, you know, he'd take the F40 back and I'd come back in the F50. And I was with a very good mate of mine, Squeezer is his nickname. And we came off that ferry at, I think it must have been about 10pm on the Sunday mm. night. So it was one of those beautiful summer's evenings where it was yeah, sort of, it was dark, but it was only just dark and it was... You know, very clear light sky. Such an amazing time and to we drive had, and, it, and we had the roof, you know, it's F50, so yeah. we had it in sort of Targa mode. And Does the roof fit in the so, Well, no, you have, you have two setups. So it's a workshop job. So you can either have it as a coupe yeah. or you can have it as a roadster and it has a soft oh, roof that goes bit. behind okay. the seats. Yeah. So we had it in that and we had the roof off the whole weekend, I think. And it was just, and it had the, the exhaust valves wide open. So it wasn't a sports exhaust, but with the valves wide open, they are noisy. Mm. And it was just one of the best sort of like open top flat out blasts to the M25 and we didn't get caught because at that time, I mean, we didn't break the speed limit, I'd like to say. Yeah. Um, but we were just you know, drove enthusiastic. But we drove up to the speed limit very yeah. fast and yeah, it, it was just a great drive and you can't, you can't, you know, you can't drive like that on the roads anymore, which is why the race, you know, we were talking about racing cars earlier. I think racing cars are such an interesting proposition because it, it's the future. Yeah. And you can drive them flat out. You can drive a race car as hard as you want on a track. No one's going to tell you anything else other than, yeah, you should maybe go a bit faster. Yeah. Do it on the street, you're bellend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do not drive fast on the road. I, I Obviously, we all did when we were younger, we did. But today, it, look, unless it's, you know, there's a, a reason or an opportunity or a test or whatever, but, you know, within reason and being sensible. But I really don't drive fast on the road anymore. Do you think that's because you get a lot of track time? related uh, i would say it's because i yes that's a huge part of it and b because i've got so much on my mind yeah you know the business has grown so much and we've got over 40 employees now and there is so much going on and it's you know it's a it's a fast industry in yeah. terms of you've got to be the first guy to get the cars and you've got to get the deals done and if there's one man looking for a particular model and there's two or three for sale yeah. you want him to buy yours you know you're, you've always got to be on it so i think actually a lot of it's that but and Finally, I, you know, it's very irresponsible. Yeah. I think in, in, in today's, you know, the, the UK is more crowded than ever, ever on the roads. So you've just got to be so careful. And, and I think rightly so. I think yeah. we, we all sort of perhaps drove in a way that we shouldn't have before. And that was then and this is now. And it really is socially uh, irresponsible. And to, to, modern cars. Oh, well, even old too cars. It's just they? so fast, so you know, easy. Again, we come back to the F40 and it's... You know, you're not necessarily breaking the speed limit. It's the way you get there. Yeah. It's the way you accelerate up to 60 or 70 miles an hour. One of the best slash worst things about it, like a, a normal suspension one, not adjustable suspension, 
is the suspension is a bit crap. And because of that, you get all of this interesting stuff at normal speeds. Mm. And therefore, you get that layer of involvement. When a car's just unbelievably locked down the entire time, you have to go faster. Yeah. Like a 720S or something. Yeah. Or a LaFerrari. Or a LaFerrari. A LaFerrari feels like a 458 when you first drive yeah. on. It's, I mean, supercar, yeah, amazingly smooth and sensitive. But if you're able to go over 100 miles an hour in one, it's incredible. Mm. The difference is incredible. So. But. You can't on the road. Take it to the track. <laughs> go for a hoon. Right, next question. Five car garage. Unlimited value. And just because you sell Ferraris doesn't mean you'd have to have Ferraris. Okay, so five car garage, that's Unlimited value and it has to fit into your life. Ooh. So if you had kids, I don't know whether you have kids. No. Lots of pressure to. Um <laughs> I think the first car has to be an F forty. Okay. Non cap, non adjust. Lots of weave, mm-hmm. straight through exhaust. Red? Maybe not, actually. Maybe not. And that's an interesting one. I, that is something. We are restoring an F40 at the moment, and I'm thinking about maybe not, doing something a bit yeah. different. Not not radically, not trying to you know, do a singer or anything yeah, like yeah. that, but just make some improvements, mm-hmm. little improvements. But so, yeah, for sure, an F40, I think a... Weirdly, a 599 GTO. Okay. I think, yeah, we had one before that I shared with Andrew Smith again, mm. who we own the GT4, uh, Ford GT and the GT40 with, that we sold to buy, to mm. pay for the Ford GT. And we had so much fun with that car. It was incredible. And it was just such a capable all-round car. I'd love to have one of those again. Mm. And it was because you, it had a big boot and you could put lots of, you know, luggage and stuff in and do do cross-country mm. Yeah, cross, very usable cross European jaunts and again really fast and it was that nice balance between being quite raw but and slightly primitive but yeah. not too sophisticated so that single clutch if you're driving it hard is great like yeah. it's got that kick to it yeah. it's not seamless got a bit of wham yeah so I think I'd have a 599 GTO and then I'd probably go quite old and racy so I'd love to have so in the what's si- your daily in this scenario well, I, I live at the office, at the house at the office, so... Okay, so you literally just walk down... So and, do I need a... You don't do need have, to get do to work. Do I have work. to do that? I don't know. <laughs> you can literally... Well, you, no, this is your five-car garage. Would I have a daily? I mean, I don't keep a car in the garage, so... <laughs> okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah realistically, is, you don't have to drive to work. Yeah, I don't, so I don't really need a daily car. Okay. I wasn't even thinking about that, sorry. No, 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 I, I'm just wondering if... <laughs> I mean, uh, well... A day, if you want me to choose a daily, you don't. Ha- you don't have to. Uh, I'm not going to actually because I don't no. have one. So okay, I go old school. So da- so dad had a lightweight E type in yeah. in the 60s. One of the, I think there were 12, but but it was a low drag mm-hmm. 49 FXN, quite a famous car. I'd have that. I've always wanted that car. Yeah, I've actually always wanted a Jaguar D type, mm. and I'd have a long nose a long nose D type. I think would be a seriously cool car to have. They are very cool. Yeah. And again, that, that's because I just remember as a kid, you know, when we had D-types in and out of the workshop, you know, we used to look after one for Anthony Bamford and we restored Ralph Lauren's car for him as well. Mm. And they just, they always struck me as just a, an amazingly advanced car for the time and everything about it was just yeah. right. So that's four cars, isn't that's it? four. Got one more. So one more car. I think it's cliche and I apologise, but I would have an F1. I was literally about to say, are you I would about have to say an F1. F1 and GTR? I'd have, 
No. GTR has two seats. GTR has no windows, no air conditioning. LM? Ooh. Well, I was going to say an F1 with a high downforce kit, but... Okay. But an LM, yeah. Maybe an LM. An LM or an F1 with a high downforce kit. I think mm. the car I would like doesn't exist. Okay. But it, it would be in a great British colour of some description. Yeah. So some sort of green. green. Some sort of green, I think, with a high downforce kit, because I am a kid of the 90s. You know? Yeah, yeah. Born in the 80s, loved cars in the 90s. And, you know, the high downforce kit with the louvres on the front wing. I thought that red car at, is it a Pebble or something, like a year, last year? It was like a red LM or something? That was quite cool. So there was the... There was the uh, there was a car with an LM engine, maybe, maybe which was, was grey, and then there was another one like four years before that that was like a burnt orange. Yeah, that was quite a nice car with the, which was high downforce kit LM engine. I think I would have one of those, and you know it's cliche, and people always say, "Oh, they're as good to drive as you think they are." Actually, they're not, which I quite yeah. like about them. You know, the, the steering doesn't self center; it's quite heavy steering. Yeah. If it's a, if you're in a hot country and there's three of you in the car, the I'm air conditioning hot. cannot cope. You know, and even with the upgrade, they did an upgrading period. It cannot cope, and I and I just I like that rawness about them. I like the fact that they're they're on this pedestal, and I think that probably fifty percent of the owners, the first time they drive them, think this is going to be something life. This is going to be easy, and it's going to be like driving a an M three, yeah, BMW, and it's not. It's so different. So I like that sort of peculiarity about them, and the fact that the you know lightly modified road car won Le Mans. That's yeah. that's a really good piece of history. I feel like it's just the car for our our sort of generation. It is, yeah. And 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 look, there's nothing wrong with the CLK GTR. There's nothing wrong with the 996 GT1, but the F1 just has that. It's the one. It has that edge. It's the one that started it. Yeah. You know, the original and pure. That's drive to Le Mans and won. Yeah, yeah. And it, like I said, it's cliche. And I think a few years ago I would have said 250 GTO because I was always trying. Yeah. You know, again, I would have said that was cliche. Mm. And and that was because I was trying to avoid the obvious cars, but you always yeah. come back to it. And I think I've got to that with the F1. You know, there is something very special about them. And we're lucky that we you know, store one here and yeah. are able to look at it as often as we Every please. Every now and then. Yeah. They're very, they're, they're cool. But I think, you know, five's a tough number. It is. Five is a really tough number. Wait for the next one. Okay. You can only drive one car for the rest of your life. And you're allowed like a 500 pound beater for other usages, but one car. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can I invent it? That's a different answer. I have not heard that, but you can... In what In what way? I... Well, I, uh, the refreshing thing is that so many new cars are actually really good. Yep. And I, I think that a GTC4 Lusso... Mm-hmm. is a great car. It is. It is. I, um, and, you know, people would be surprised by that. But why? You know, in this day and age, they're comfortable. Yeah. If you leave it outside for a winter, it will not be steamed up when you get in it in the morning, mm-hmm. unless you've got a bab on. But, you know, generally they shouldn't be. They have great nav. They have great sound system. They have heated seats at work. Yeah. They have really good Bluetooth. Boot. They have a boot. You can sit four adults in them comfortably. If you buy the V8, it's actually quite fuel efficient. Okay. Amazingly. Yeah. But then everyone says, oh, you haven't got the V12, but hey-ho. You know, they're, they're really good. They're, I think that's a really hard car to beat. They are. For, as a forever car. Very good. And actually today, 
I've, I saw the other day that there's one advertised with 9,000 miles with a dealer for 160. Yeah. I was looking at them the other day. There's That's a very, quite difficult to beat. There's like a maroony coloured one for sale somewhere. There's a Verdi Zeltweg one at Meridian Moderna. What colour is that? That's like dark metallic green. Um, mm. With with tan interior. It's really nice. Yeah. Tasty. This this maroon one, I'll, I'll show it to you. It has like a chocolatey interior as well. That was. It's not a colour I would go for, but when I saw this... Yeah. Right car, right right time. Okay, GCC for Alyssa. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I could invent one, then it would be something along those lines. You know, it'd be, a, it'd be something that like had... Koenigsegg Jamira. Well, I mean, what a car. <laughs> what a car. What a car. And we were looking at the CCR that we've got here earlier, and, yeah. and, I, and I think they are... I think Koenigsegg's on an amazing trajectory. I think they're... Forgive... You know, Mr. Pagani, forgive me, but I think they are going in the direction Pagani should be going in, which yeah. is revolutionary technology and thinking outside the box. Actually doing some engineering. Yeah. And and that's what you want. And that's why I like the Speedtail, because it's a prospect of three guys jumping in the car together for a long weekend to go to a race meeting or something yeah. with their luggage. I think it's a cool idea. Like I, I would I would like to see more stuff like that. I would like to see more different stuff. I 100% agree. With boot. With a boot. You know. Yes, with a boot. Because, like, you know, you go to, like, I, I will sometimes go to the Silverstone Classic or Goodwood yeah. and try and take something decent. And actually, the only car that you can take your helmet in and your race kit yeah. and your clothes is an F40. Yeah. Amazingly, because they actually have You've got tons of space. Anything else, it's the yeah, passenger seat. Take so you like a laugh, nothing. Well, you passenger seat, but then you go on your own. Yeah. Which, you know, no one wants to... Sort of turn yeah, you want to take someone else. You want to take someone with you, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Right, next question. What's the most undervalued car at the moment? What do you think is like cheap and good value? Well, there's about 35 of them on my website. <laughs> no, uh, undervalued. Hmm. Oh, gosh. That is really tough. I should have. I should have planned for this, shouldn't I? What are you secretly buying up and putting storage? <laughs> I think you've seen them. <laughs> oh, look, it's, I mean, I, I could say that. I've all, I do think F40 is a great value for money still, mm-hmm. even though they are 10 times what they were, you know, 20 years ago. They are surprisingly, you know, only in my mind, only five or six times what they were five years ago. Oh, sorry, five years ago, 10 years ago. And yeah, I, I still think they tick a lot of boxes and just anyone listening to this will have listened to us talking about F40s. Yeah, yeah. We both know F40s really well and we've spent so much time talking about them. And people always say, well, there's 1,300 of them, but there aren't 1,300 of them. Yeah. You got to take I mean, a- there's literally, what, one burnt down two weeks ago. Well, there we go. I mean, look, there's probably 1,200 cars running around. You can, you know, I, I, ex- I expect that most of your listeners are probably European-based. You can discount the US spec cars because as a European, you wouldn't want one of those. Yeah. And then when you look at the balance of cars and let's say there's 900 left to choose from, once you pick out what you want, yeah. whether it's mileage-wise, cat, non-cat, adjust, suddenly you're looking at 250 cars for, for your yeah. spec that you want and your price bracket. And then you look at the history and then and it's very easy to whistle it down. And you know, I think that's probably why they've been such a steady appreciator as opposed to you know, the F50s doubled in value in one year. F40s yeah. have never done that. They've just gone sort of 350, yeah. 500, 700, 800, million, 1.2. Lowest yeah. mileage cars now are 1.6. Highest mileage cars are, you know, I, d- I don't think you can buy a car for realistically for less than 750 now, unless yeah. it's got a huge story, you know. Yeah. 
and at 750 it's going to be 60,000 kilometers yeah but you know these those cars are all about compromise you, there is a compromise you're going to have to make whether it's lack of history lack of you know high mileage or yeah. whatever i i find when we see we see loads of new really new cars that are, might be a special edition of a let's say something like a 599 gto or f12 tdf or a speciali or gt3 rs 4 litre or whatever these these cars that are sort of the the middle-ish of of the range of that thing they're not the hypercar they're not the top level and these cars sometimes get up to you know there was a point in time when a a four liter gt3 rs was 600 grand or 500 and a Carrera GT was 500 at the same time. Oh, you know, they were within not a lot of each other. And you think that doesn't make sense? And you're yeah. like, well, that's just balmy. Yeah. Because one of those is a different category of car. It, it exists in the category above. And you find these cars, whether it's, you know, 599 GTO, they got up to 900 for right-hand drives at one point in time. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, these other cars, like an Enzo or whatever, was... A similar amount of money at the same time and it's just you go hang on they're not the same well and then maybe i've just you know and my best mate ed he always says whenever you say what's your budget you always double it for me yeah when i answer <laughs> his question i always double it and, I'm, and, and i've probably gone in you know with too high a value car there but actually in the market you know yeah. 288s f50s enzos they're all that they're, they're circa two million yeah and an f40 is circa one million for a car that I think more people would want, if you had a hundred people in a room and said, right, everyone put their hand up for an F40, 288, yeah. you know, car for life, one car, F40, 288, F50, and so the F40 is going to win every single day yeah. of the week. Definitely so the slightly younger people. Big, bigger supply, but much bigger demand. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think they, I always think they will be, but actually you've touched on something just now and it's sort of a, a, a side, side conversation but there's some really good value deals out there at the moment for modern cars and mm. GC4 list. So we've discussed already, but the 130 grand 720s. Yeah. And actually get confused with the names, but is it a 600 LT? Yeah. You can buy one of those for like, that's new for sort of 160. Yeah. A yeah. new 600 LT for 160. That's yeah. a lot of car. For a, well, there's just a, a long list of cars that are, you sort of, I'm watching and annoyingly, the ones that I really want aren't coming down. But things like an F12, I'd love to own an F12 at some point to have done the sort of V12, not sort of done the V12 thing. I'm sure I'd like to have more V12s at some point in time as well. But they, they're they just slowly coming down. I think you, you can get an, an F12 for 150 now. You can probably get one for less, I'm sure. In a year's time, will they be 130? I don't know. In six months' time, will they be 130? I don't know. There's- I don't think so. I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there. And I'm going back to my experience of 08, 09. Yeah. There are a lot of, pe- a lot of people out there that have put their hard-earned money into these sorts of cars, whether it be 550, 575, yeah. 599, F12. And those guys will just not be prepared to take those sorts of hits. Yeah. So I think, you know, when cars get to a certain age, they will have dropped enough yeah. that they can't go any lower. And yeah, actually, I agree with that. And naturally, an F12 is a better car than a 599. Yeah. So it's going to have to be more than a 599. And a 599 kind of has to be more than a 575. Yeah. And a 575 kind of has to be exactly. more than a 550. Obviously, Joker in the pack is 575 with the manual gearboxes. Yeah. Above a 599. But 
but you get what I mean. Yeah. And, you know, all of that stuff, I think a really good trick at the moment as well is to buy anything that's over five years old. Yeah. Anything under five years old. There's a lot of people that can afford to dump money. And that's why you can buy an 812 today for, yeah. With you, you could buy an 812 with a thousand miles for 260,000 yeah. pounds. Sorry to all the guys that have got yeah, cars out there. If you just bought more. an 812 and you turn around to your dealer, they are basically giving you a hundred grand less than you paid for. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think as a retail buyer right now, you could go and buy a three hundred and fifty thousand pound list within the last twelve months, eight twelve for two sixty. Yeah, if you just hundred percent phone all the guys and just say, look, two sixty on the table, yeah. let's go. That's a lot of car for money, and and obviously, you know, there are lots of people out there that have been buying everything and have done very well with their LaFerrari and yeah. things like that. They flipped and they've made loads five hundred, maybe two hundred on their F twelve TDF. So. They're okay with that, you know, yeah. if they look at the portfolio. But when those guys buy those cars at that level, they're, they're going to accept they're going to probably be yeah. late ones or early twos in the next two years' time. But then they can't drop below that because an 812 is a better car than an F12. Yeah. And that, that will always remain and it always has done. That point about you saying where owners stop, start to stop selling cars, and there are always going to be people that need to get out of cars and then, you know, people die or whatever. There's these sort of sure. situations but I definitely have with the cars that say that I own, there is a low point where there's absolutely no way I'm selling it. Yeah. And, and that, and I was talking about 2009. Yeah. That was it. You know, there were people on the phone in one ear saying, I will, you know, I will pay this for the car. I think it will be there soon. Yeah. And then the other ear, the guy's like, well, I just won't sell it for that. So yeah. send it back. Exactly. And, 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 you know, there's no denying the last two or three years, we've seen some changes in the market, but we found that bottom. Yeah, and you know that, that it, it's just happened, and it's, and the modern car thing is all to do with the and, you know it's a completely different topic for a different podcast, I'm sure. But you know the 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 premium market for normal model new cars, McLaren, Ferrari, it's over, it's gone, and people shouldn't be buying cars for that reason. That's not no, that's not that's not why you buy these cars to make profit. It's to enjoy them, and it's you, it's business as usual. Everyone always everyone needs to, to accept. That you your car like what halves in value every three years yeah, or people need to remember not accept but remember yeah. you know this has been a short lived thing that that guys have just put their name down for all these different cars yeah. and you know when you Flipped haven't them in three months and, and when you haven't got a great relationship with a brand like Ferrari and suddenly you're getting a pista I something's changed hasn't it so I don't think let's say the speciality that wasn't very difficult to get hold of. I think the Speciale was probably the first car. It was towards the end of its run. Yeah, at the end. At the end, they were like, actually, you can have one. But not many people realised that. And, and, it, and it obviously was a great market. And by that point in time, by the time you were getting to the end, it was very, everyone was very aware that they were plus 100. So you're like, well, if I can get one, I've literally, I, yeah. can, I can sell it before I take delivery. Yeah. But that, it was that period of time. Yeah. when those cars started to become interesting. Yeah, but it was always going to be short-lived because all the manufacturers were going to say, well, let's just build more, yeah. launch more models, and we are where we are. But it's, it's good for me because you know, we don't supply new cars, No, and I've never really been a, a flipper or a, a you know, yeah. premium dealer of that, you know, buying cars for premium and yeah. selling them for premium plus X. <laughs> yeah. you know, we've been specialising in cars that we understand and we know and I, I cannot tell you the last six months how many people have come full circle back. They disappeared off for five years to go and buy yeah. all these new Latest, modern cars. And they've, they've probably got a Monza coming, which they're excited about. 
I'm maybe a bit scared. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a cool car to own, but I, I'm glad the price point isn't as high as everyone thought it was going to be. Do we know be. if they've sold them all? Uh, I, yeah, they must have. They must have. How um, many cars are they making? Thousands? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, it's not my, not okay. my thing, but... You're, but, you're, uh, but you're like seven years down the line. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'll <laughs> tell you in seven years. But I'm seeing these guys, or we're seeing here, these guys come back and start looking at 275s and, you know, yeah. other cars again, which is quite refreshing to to sort of discover they've come full circle again. But, you know, there's yeah, there's a lot of new cars on the market, and I I think there's some great cars. Great there's cars, so just- many special editions now. It used to be that was a rare thing, and they were quite unique. Whereas all the manufacturers at the moment are just coming out with special edition after special edition after special edition. And I'm not saying they're not great cars, and they probably are great cars, but there are just too many of them, I think. And I think possibly what's happened is the manufacturers have gone, well, no one really wants to buy the normal cars because there's this perception that the special cars are going to hold value or be worth more. So no one in their right mind would buy... Let's just say you can buy a 720S new or you could buy a 765LT or you could buy a, a normal 911 Carrera or you could buy a GT3 RS. In my eyes, it's always worth, it. It's in the last couple of years, it's always been worth taking out finance or whatever to cover the gap to get you into a GT3 rather than a normal 911 because you're going to come out of your three years of ownership and it's going to cost you nothing. Whereas they're now producing so many of these cars, those have become... They've almost become the standard model. That's just what everyone buys, a 600LT. They've made a ton of 600LTs. So everyone's bought them, and then now they become the normal car, and therefore they're no longer special, and they've lost, they lose value it's just, again. It's just another model. It's just a car, it's just and it's another, another model. model. Yeah. It's another car that someone's built with no roof and no windscreen. Yeah, and I, I think at the moment we've got this tremendous opportunity ahead of us where because of this electric takeover which I don't understand when you actually look at it and you look at the resources required and yeah. and the and the the draw that's going to be required it they're going to have to make a U-turn It's on like it. taking your finance out on your CO2 when you buy yeah. an electric car. Yeah. Does it pay back in 10 years maybe maybe not. Yeah I mean it's you know they're going to have to make a U-turn on that. But that said the technology obviously there's immense pressure to change the technology. It'll get there. I think the classic car world has just as of about now, being solidified into this 120-year period. Mm. And, you know, there are different segments. So you've got yeah. your brass cars and your veteran cars and your you know, your classic cars from the 60s and 70s and then your modern classics and then your supercars and your hypercars. Mm. And there'll be different segments, a bit like the art market, yeah. know, where you've got impressionists and, and pop art, all that stuff. There'll be these different segments with a finite number of cars yeah. and people will be into everything or into certain segments and there'll be people that only buy that stuff and people that only specialise in that stuff and it'll be its own yeah. controlled environment. And I don't think boys are ever going to be, I mean, and girls, but yeah. in the main boys are ever going to not like fast, loud, cars, fast cars, loud noises. You know, it's, it's ingrained in our DNA. You know, mm. when you look at children and what they like, as you grow up, it's... And hopefully we're going to be around for another 60 years or something. Maybe yeah. not quite, but, you know, it's that sort of amount. That's a long time exactly. for us to be owning and buying cars. Yeah, we're not going to forget it overnight. No. Maybe the kids born now might not have it. Yeah. But that's still a long time. <laughs> you still see it, you know, you you still... 
when you you know obviously test drive these cars on the road a lot and you still see the appreciation though from youngsters mm. you know, they get the phones out and they take the photos so it's not going away no and uh, you know we have uh, we have our own events to go to and you have the good woods of the world which the industry's grown so and much from that side of things and it's still growing that sunday morning drive yeah that 30 minutes in your f40 yeah that's never getting old no and it's <laughs> and, and it's healthy you know it's yeah. like it's sort of get up with a clear clear head and go for it it's yeah. you know i, I think yeah it's a good thing it's a good thing it's a good thing right final question what's the most interesting car to you at the moment what are you sort of like Googling, looking up, going, hmm, that's interesting. YouTube, whatever. Actually, it's not necessarily interesting car. And we touched on this subject earlier. It's cars with rare specifications. Okay. So a color, color specific. Yeah. So, you know, to, to use the Carrera GTs again, yeah. the, blue, the blue cars we had, we did mm. really well with. Uh, we had lots of interest. Could sell both of those cars five times yeah. over again. So... You know, I'm I am really interested in paying a premium for cars that separate themselves from the crowd. Yeah, because I think that's what people want now. So, and low mileage comes into that as well. It's it's so it's it's you know if the car's different because it was a unique spec, uh, and I don't mean tailor made. Mm. I mean you know just it was we were talking about those uh, those GC4 Lussos. Yeah, and you were talking about a dark red one. I was talking about a dark green one. Yeah, those sorts of cars, not silver, not black. No, not the standard not white, colors. Whatever. Although, like again, before Christmas, we sold the silver F50, one yeah. of four cars built, and it was mega. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And it, like, and it, I do like a Grigio Silverstone. I think it's and it was, and it was, but but that was rare for an F50. Yeah. Or you know, going back to our our benchmark model, like an F40 with low mileage. You yeah. know, I think is really interesting because there are lots of people out there that want to sort of almost be the first owner, didn't yeah. have an opportunity to own it originally, so that makes sense. And you know, you get that with. F12 TDFs at the moment, there are quite a few low mileage cars out there and there are loads of guys that want one that actually when they were ordered four or five yeah. years ago, they were definitely not in the position to yeah. even think about ordering one but have done very well of late and would like to have yeah. a new car to be the first owner of that car. Yeah. So, and we've actually just today sold an F12 TDF with 100 miles on the clock which was Grigio Apaco from, or Grigio Titanio Apaco from the mm. factory. Looks stunning. It looks and that's, so cool. that sort of car is you know, that over a red F12 TDF, you've yeah. sold it in a day amongst all of the stuff that's going on at the moment. Mm. Stole it in a day, whereas a red one we wouldn't have done as well with. So yeah, that's 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 the stuff I'm looking for. If I can buy, if I can find or buy cars that stand out from the crowd because it because of celebrity ownership, because of low mileage, because of individual colour mm. or something rare and unique, like the Bentley. Yeah. You know, the Carlo Talamo Bentley, it's... I, I, I'm happy to own that car it's crazy. for a year because it looks great. It's a great talking point. It's cool. Everyone loves it. And when everyone, you know, it's wandering around, everyone goes like, oh, tell me about this because this is totally different. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's cool. Like I really like, I don't like Bentleys that much, yeah. but I really like that car and I was impressed with the way it drove. And when you read the story and look at how, you know, the lengths they went to to satisfy him, mm. which is, I guess, why it cost a billion lira when it was new. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all there. You yeah. know, and it's very identifiable, right from the bonnet to the yellow badges to the turned aluminium. Yeah, the yellow fans, whatever, yeah. All that stuff, you know, it's all the little details that added up to this fabulous one-off car. Yeah, that's what I That's what I want. I want to have the, you know, if someone wants to buy that car or a car that's yeah. unique, that's that's what I'm looking at now. Not run-of-the-mill, just another 
458 or whatever. Speciali, I was going to yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> Although I like Speciali. I saw a Speciali Aperta today in London. A yellow one. Cool cars. Kind of cool. Yeah, again, one of those cars that got to some sort of nonsense value at some point, which... Yeah, some people made a lot of money. Yeah. But just bonkers. But where did that come from? Yeah. Did I miss that that car won, won Le Mans? I, no. And no. it had a badge. It had a badge. <laughs> one of the most embarrassing things I think I've ever seen in a car. It, was, it has a badge in between the seats that says, like, we won, and then it's a magazine award for an engine. What? Brilliant. Really cool, mate. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there are, yeah, yeah. I think uh, the nice thing about Speciali Aperta, though, is that there is a theme to a collection that you can have there. Yeah. You know, going back to earlier, we said that no one has one car anymore. Yeah. If you're into this, you have five, 10, 15. Um, I would quite like a Speciali Aperta. Yeah. I wouldn't like to pay what they cost now. But as a car, I reckon it would be a quite a, it would be a great convertible to and I, own. And I think as a theme of a collection, the lightweight V8s, starting yeah. with 348 GTC, a 355 Challenge, a Challenge Stradale, 430 Scuderia, a yeah. 16M, a Speciali, a Speciali Aperta, and then obviously a Pista and a Pista yeah. Aperta. That's cool. And again, you could probably identify that theme with a colour, you know, every single one in black or something like that. And I like that. I've fallen know. asleep at that point. Yeah. Well, okay, there we go. But I like, um, I do like themes to collections. I think. That's kind of fun. I think you, did you sell a while ago? You sold three black cars. It's like a speciality. Yeah, so we, we, assembled, we assembled the collection originally for the guy and then we sold the Challenge Stradale and the Scuderia, but he still has a speciality, which is okay, yeah. new. That's kind of fun. Yeah. And it was, and it was, and it was good for him. And he was, he was, you know, a lovely guy, and was quite new to mm. to the cars. He'd always had, funnily enough, he'd always had one car, and he yeah. had a five seven five, and then he had a three five five, and then one day he just, yeah. it's like right, let's put this together. And then he had an F forty and a Lusso and mm. all sorts of really good cars, and really, you know, got into the sixties at one point, yeah, yeah. and then I do think that is cool actually seeing those three cars together or whatever. An assembled, it's a cool thing. It's an cool assembled thing. collection with a bit of sense behind yeah. it. Why have you got to this? As opposed to, you know, there is always a link between all the cars yeah. and people's collections and being able to quickly understand what that link is, is quite important, you know, and race cars get to that, you know, when you have, well, I've got an F1 car, I've got a, a Le Mans prototype, I've got a GT1 car, I've got... Group C, whatever, yeah. yeah. It, it's it, These are all the different things they did, yeah. but it, it's a similar... I just can't remember the word now. Not a talent, but a similar... Sort of vein. Yeah, thinking. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So there we go. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been Pleasure. good. It's been Enjoyed good to it. have a little yeah. look around and see what's going on. And... uh I hope everyone's happy, and I've, again, I apologise to Lamborghini. <laughs> it's just, it's just my personal thing. <laughs> yeah, well, this is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thanks very much. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.